production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hi, my name is Harsha and I will be doing the intro. So, over the past year, sexual assault allegations continue to mount and the country is taking notice. As celebrities declare Time's Up at the Golden Globes and the Time Magazine announces the Silence Breakers as the 2017 Person of the Year, survivors of sexual assault are finding strength in their collective voice. It can be argued that this outpouring of revelations and support for sexual assault victims is long overdue. In 1991, Anita Hill testified against U.S. Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, who alleged that he sexually harassed her during her time in the education department. While Thomas was eventually confirmed to the Supreme Court, after Hill's testimony, sexual harassment complaints filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission doubled. Decades prior to Hill's testimony, sexual harassment at work for women was simply a part of the job, and today, one in three women between the ages 18 through 34 indicate that they have been sexually harassed at work. In 2006, activist Tarana Burke began using the phrase, Me Too, to express support for victims of sexual assault. This year, the phrase was catapulted into the mainstream when actress Alyssa Milano began using it as a hashtag on Twitter to demonstrate the magnitude of the problem and to encourage women to speak out. And speak out they have with astonishing results. Just recently, Dr. Larry Nasser, the U.S. Gymnastics National Team doctor, was sentenced to 175 years in prison for sexually abusing more than 200 young women. It's clear that sexual harassment and assault permeates all demographics, but the opportunities for support vary. Today, celebrities are raising millions of dollars for activist groups while watching their perpetrators fall from grace, lose their jobs, and disappear from public eye. Yet, what happens to those women without such social clout? As the hashtag MeToo movement gains traction, what is being done in Northeast Ohio to support survivors and ensure justice for all women? Our panelists are here today to shed some light on the movement. Allow me to introduce our panelists. First, we have Mae Bennett, Domestic Violence Service Coordinator for the Jewish Family Service Association. Through her work, Ms. Bennett provides direct service to survivors through case management, legal advocacy, safety planning, and trauma therapy, while managing educational support groups and teen dating violence prevention programs that reach approximately 2,000 of Cuyahoga County's youth annually. Rachel DeSalle, reporter for The Plain Dealer. Along with fellow reporter Leela Atassi, Ms. DeSalle exposed police negligence in rape rep investigations and a vast backlog of 4,000 unprocessed kits stretching back 20 years. Due to her reporting, the kits are being processed, police are being held accountable, and rapists are being put behind bars. Alex Leslie, Senior Director of Educational Services for the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center. 
The Cleveland Rape Crisis Center supports survivors of rape and sexual abuse, promotes healing and prevention, and advocates for social change. And Commander James P. McPike, Commander of the Bureau of Special Investigations for the City of Cleveland. Commander McPike oversees the Accident Investigation Unit, the Homicide Unit, Sex Crimes and Child Abuse Unit, the Domestic Violence Unit, and Financial Crimes and Crime Scenes, as well as Forensics. Here to guide our discussion is senior and youth forum council member, Rosalind Midorski. Rosalind, I turn the former forum over to you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start by asking each of you just to tell us in a few sentences how the increase in awareness about sexual harassment has affected your jobs. Can we start? Sure. Okay. Um, so I think uh, as a journalist, we have, um, and I have for the 17 or so years I've been doing this, have, have told a lot of stories um, of people that have either been harassed or sexually assaulted. Um, and I think telling those stories is important so other people know that they exist. We've also done the hard work to tell stories and to kind of shed light on things that people ha can't share publicly so easily because it's difficult or because they don't feel like they'll be believed or that you know, the system just doesn't respond to them in a friendly way. And so I think that this movement just kind of brings even more light and more recognition to that work. Um, it makes it a little bit easier in some ways, but it also makes it difficult because now there's so many stories and we're trying to, to figure out, you know, which ones do we tell? How do we tell them? And then how do we also acknowledge the people that don't feel that they can share everything publicly and, and make sure that the, experience of the experiences that they have are also a part of the conversation? I'll go next. Um, at Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, uh, this end of the year, basically during the time that the hashtag MeToo took off near around end of September, beginning of October, we saw a 40% increase in usage of our hotline, um, which also has a text uh, option. So we saw over this past year, we reached double the amount of people that we reached the previous year through our 24-hour hotline and, and text, text hotline. Uh, beyond that, we saw an equal number of intake, increases in intakes over the previous year. So what we notice, um, we know two things. Uh, it takes our clients about 10 years after they're assaulted to come to us for therapy. Um, and if you think about that, that's a decade of sitting with something very harmful and traumatic. This movement stirred things up for people. Uh, and the best you know, that, that we have to offer is, is some really excellent therapy. And a lot of people kind of looked and said, now feels like the time that I'm ready to, to get help. And there's still countless people in our region who, who are deserving of help and haven't, haven't made that step yet. Um, and we constantly want them to remember that um, it's here and it's waiting when they're ready for it. Uh, I wanna echo Alex that we have seen a 25% increase of clients um, at Jewish Family Services, our domestic violence service program. And the question is, we're talking about sexual assault, right? And so the Center for Disease Control states that 52% of victims, of sexual assault victims, identify their perpetrator as their intimate partner. And so this isn't a separate issue of sexual assault or domestic violence. We're two sides of the same coin, right? Um, I think the biggest change has been the shift in our clients. Whereas before discussing sexual abuse in all of its forms, 
Um, there's been some trepidation and some shame, right? Um, now there's more willingness to talk through what happened um, and to seek healing and that not feeling so alone. And I think that's been instrumental for our clients. Uh, so for the Cleveland Division of Police, you know, we look at this as two different issues. You got sexual harassment, which in some companies is simply a violation of rules. And then you have sexual assault, which is when the police gets involved in investigations. Some sexual harassments do sometimes become sexual assaults. And both of them in and of themselves can be very harming and damaging to a person. We did not see a huge increase in investigations last year. It kind of surprised me and it kind of didn't um, because I have talked to rape crisis, which we work with, very, and I kind of expected an increase. We didn't see that. But the other side that didn't surprise me is a lot of people do use the services of these agencies that you see here and want nothing to do with the police, and, and that's okay. You know, first and foremost, uh, hopefully people can get healing. Um, and sometimes through counseling and through services that these agencies provide does give somebody the courage to come to the police if in fact it was a sexual assault. Um, so you guys spoke a little bit um, to the volume of calls um, that have been coming in that increased in dramatically since the height of the Me Too movement and similar increases are being experienced nationally. Could you speak about the factors that have influenced this increase and whether the level of trauma you are observing is changing in any way? So I think the major national factor um, that, that's at play is people are seeing they're not alone. Um, and I think one of the, the worst parts of sexual trauma is how um, desperately alone people who experience it feel. Um, because it is shameful and, and harmful and hurts so much to the very core of, of their being. And so there is this feeling that uh, they carry that shame and they can't, nobody else can handle it or handle the burden of that shame. And what, what I see with this movement is, you know, it, it's really simple. It's two words, right? It's me too. But people are seeing that they're not alone. I don't know how many folks, you know, looked at their social media feeds the day after this sort of broke, but, you know, it, for me, it was countless. Now, I do this professionally, and I'm, I'm connected with a lot of folks who, who do this work for obvious reasons, but it, it, was, it was innumerable people sharing. Um, and that sense of not feeling alone is one of the greatest um, reasons that people feel more comfortable coming forward. You know, um, we, one of the modalities we offer to help people heal is group, uh, group therapy. Um, and there's a lot that people can learn from each other in terms of coping from trauma and, and things like that. So I think the biggest, the biggest advantage this movement has had is enabled people to feel like they're not, not alone sitting with their trauma anymore. Yeah, I want to add to what Alex said. You asked, did the level of trauma change? Mm -hmm. And that's, not, that's the same. It's the same level of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, what's changed is the level of empowerment because this movement is showing it is not an individual that experiences these things, it's a people. And this is a people problem. This is our society's problem. And I think that that has kind of um, seeped into anyone that seeks our services and given them courage to speak to their own experiences in that context. You know, I'm curious, um, so, with Me Too, that's kind of people speaking to everybody, but I wonder too if part of what we might see is 
everybody else figuring out the right way to react to that. Because you, you see not only people speaking up, but then you see other people discussing how do, how do we react to when someone says that. And um, you know, I've covered probably hundreds of sexual assault cases over the years, and one of the things that I often hear people say when I interview them or when they testify is that you know, the first person that I told it was my mom or my family member or my friend, and their reaction made me not want to share it with anybody else. Whether it was on purpose or not, they made me feel like maybe I shouldn't share it, maybe I was ashamed, maybe I was at fault. And so I wonder if, if seeing everybody kind of do this in mass and having that empowering part also adds another opportunity for, for us to say, when we hear that, how do we respond? And when we respond differently, do people then feel like they can share more that can help them with trauma a little bit or help them if they feel you know, like they want to report or want to get help to do so? It's easier to look at, at sexual violence and, and domestic violence as things that happen elsewhere to other people. And what this movement did do is bring it closer to everybody's threshold. You know, and so then people were confronted with basically the line in the sand, right? Uh, am I going to believe someone when they tell me, right? And I think most, most people would say, yes, I will. Um, and am I going to do everything I can to make sure that person knows how to get help? Um, am I going to notice you know, whose voices we're not hearing? You know, um, one of the things I notice even when I look at us as a panel, you know, we're not a particularly diverse group, you know, and there's a lot of evidence that, um, that especially women of color uh, and, and LGBT folks um, are not, uh, are, are victimized at incredibly high rates and their voices are not heard as often in this movement and are not um, seeking help at as higher levels as the vic victimization, so. Also, this movement, the Me Too movement, actually originally started to give black and brown girls an understanding that they weren't alone in being sexually abused. And I, I think it's very important that we acknowledge that and that we um, understand that that's such an in important part of everything that we do. Not to forget that that's where it started. Thank you. Um, how has how do you feel the mainstream image of sexual assault victims affected recovery and general attitudes towards the conversation? You mean in the past or currently or? Yeah, like so. How ha how has this new how has like this new coverage of this movement affected recovery and um, so and. So yeah. full, full disclosure, I was a sex crimes child abuse detective for many years before I started um, uh, moving up in the world. It still has a special place in my heart for that type of thing. And um, sexual assault victims, I would say that's probably the most complex investigation that a police officer can handle. There's so many nuances to it, so much um, uh, ins and outs of it. but. I think all of us in this room, there, there's not one person in this room that was raised exactly the same as somebody else, right? But we as people, and I'm, I'm talking about human beings, try to inadvertently judge other people. Well, she's not acting like a sexual assault victim. Should act, right? Mm -hmm. We all do it. Police officers do it. Everybody does it. So the, re the reality is you got to recognize that you, you, you do make that instant judgment sometimes, and you really shouldn't because it's not fair because I've certainly seen sexual assault victims run the entire spectrum from wanting to get a baseball bat and go after the guy to, to, to curling up in a fetal position. And I think this movement is bringing to light that sometimes the most unbelievable stories are often the complete truth, right? 
and it's not fair to judge. That's what a good detective does. A good detective tries to stay impartial in an investigation and let the evidence lead him where it goes. Um, often that leads to an indictment and you know, hopefully a criminal case. Sometimes it doesn't, unfortunately. It depends on where the evidence goes. So I, I love the Me Too mo movement. Um, you know, I've handled cases in the past with teachers and doctors and lawyers, um, police officers. I've investigated police officers. People in power think they can get away with things. And for a long time they were right, right? And here's this poor girl who's wondering, I'm, I'm gonna say girl because I think the majority of the victims out there, although we have a lot of men coming forward, I think the majority are, are female. This just happened to me and nobody's gonna believe me because of his status, right? Doesn't matter what that status is. So they're less reluctant to come forward. So I think this Me Too movement is really giving a powerful voice to all these victims out there that it's okay to come forward, that somebody's gonna believe you, right? And I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that on an individual level and also on the level of systems. So as individuals, we can respond in certain ways, but we've also seen you know, through some of the investigations that we've done that, that systems tend to ignore certain populations, whether it's women of color, women who have mental illnesses or who have drug abuse, those women, the system as a whole, didn't have a check and balance and, and found that those folks were easier to not believe or easier to not follow up on cases. And so then the people that were perpetrating these crimes realized that and said, well, I'm going to target the people who I know nobody's going to believe. So they kind of they did their criminal thing and said, I'm going to go to the easiest targets. And so as a system, we kind of let that happen. And I think so as we respond as individuals to listen to people and say, let me hear your story, let me believe you until there's you know a reason to not because I think an impartial investigation is always very important too so that there's trust in the system um, but then having systems look at that are there places that we're not paying attention to that there's not a check and balance to are there populations that we're not working hard enough to make sure we're responding to them in the appropriate way that we're going to them instead of making them come to us things like that that we can do to improve still beyond our individual responses so to kind of knit together what um, what Jim and Rachel were talking about, I just had this, you know, I, I've also thought, you know, so for, for the victim side, this movement has had so much meaning because they realize they're not alone. But for the general population side, as you kind of brought up earlier, it's also recognizing that perpetrators are people that we potentially know and like um, and are um, groom us to tolerate their abusive behavior. You know, there's a reason that um, Larry Nasser got away with so long sexually abusing more than 250 girls, right? He picked a career where he would have an opportunity to do it. He groomed everybody to believe that he would, you know, he's the utmost likable, well, you know, trusting kind of person. Um, and, and I think that's the, the societal, um, the, the biggest challenge as a society we have to grapple with because we have treated perpetrators of sexual violence as um, people who are, uh, that we would we would recognize, right? Oh, they 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 must be creepy, right? They must be what? Somebody can be very well liked and publicly well liked, right? Look at who has suffered, you know, the consequences of this Me Too mo movement. Popular media figures, um, you know, people that that I was a fan of, right? Comedians. Uh, we're we're still going to see how often, uh, you know, how many musicians. We have not even. I think we've not scratched the surface of the level of people who perpetrate, and almost all of them. Uh, with some exceptions, are accused of many, many examples of harassment with very consistent stories. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that 
it is not the person in the van. It is not the, the creepy person that we avoid, right? It, it's the people that we like that are capable of committing heinous evil acts. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that is, I, I think, going to shake some more foundations. There's, there's more to come um, because we, it is almost banal um, the, that people in our lives are, can cause harm, right? People who are good in some ways and harmful in others. And that, that is something we are gonna have to come to grips with. And along with that, it's an understanding that right now is key for change. Because we didn't have the capabilities to have a Me Too movement 20 years ago, right? There was no such thing as trending. There was not a platform where people could make their voices heard even if they're teenagers, even if they're the working mom, even if you know, they're the out-of-work dad. It, it doesn't matter. Any person has a platform to make their voices heard. And with the Me Too movement, what we see is when many voices come together, powerful things happen and systems are shaken. And, and truly, that's what this is about, a system that's been in place longer than many, most of us have been alive, maybe all of us, has been shaken and has been turned upside down. And this is the result. What advice would you give young men and women um, about how to encourage safety in school and work environments? I feel like I talk a lot. I always do. Okay. I'm always in the game for a long, a game. All right, I was say I'm. I'm always good game for a long answer to a short question. Um, we go into schools every day, and one of the biggest things we talk with young people about is that we get the community that we deserve. Um, that we have spent a long time as a movement to end sexual violence, trying to educate women how to keep themselves from being assaulted. And if that worked alone, it would have already, right? Um, and it, it tends to perpetuate victim blaming when we make women responsible for preventing their own victimization. We have tried teaching men not to rape people. Um, now, sometimes we, we dress it up and we're just like, you probably just don't understand what consent is. Um, but for an awful lot of men, they get really defensive when I insinuate potentially they're a rapist. I don't know why, right? But. Um, <laughs> So then I say, what, what can we do, right? If, if those strategies haven't worked yet, what can we do? Um, and we have been looking at it as a, as a two-sided equation instead of looking at everybody else. Um, it is everybody else who tolerates somebody's negative, harassing behavior. It's everybody else who sees the opportunity when somebody's really at risk, you know, they, they've had too much to drink or they're trying to avoid that person who's putting their arm around them, whatever it may be, that all of us as bystanders have a role to play to interrupt and intervene in behaviors that cross the line. And when we start talking and having that conversation, we can see change happen, right? But of course, if we don't recognize it, then we're never going to, right? If we don't recognize, again, that people around us can cause harm or that the people who um, around us can experience harm, then we're less likely to intervene. So we, we have to step up when we see those opportunities, and that's the message that we spend a lot of time talking about. And, and I think I'll just add to that from my perspective when I get <coughs> asked to talk to particularly parents and stuff, and I know we have a lot of um, younger young men and women in here. Um, you know, growing up, I, 
I was taught stranger danger, and I think most of us heard that from our parents at some point, don't talk to strangers. I also like to tell people to talk about body safety. Um, who has a right to touch your body? Who has a right not to touch your body? The reality, when you're a juvenile in our society, the person most likely to sexually assault you is somebody you already know. Um, it's very, very rare for strangers to sexually assault children. It does happen, but it's very rare. So those two things, stranger danger and body safety, I think are really important. And I think like, so I'm coming at this maybe not as a journalist, but as a parent, I think learning how to have those conversations with a young person in your house. So I have a 13 year old in my house and I have to admit it was really, really awkward for me to figure out how to have those conversations. I got books from the library and sat down on the couch and the 13 year old in my house was like, what do we do in here? And I was like, oh, I'm failing at this miserably. But I had to learn how to have a conversation with her, not only about her life and like if, if you have a boyfriend like what's the conversation that you have you know it's okay to like someone if you want to kiss someone that's okay if you're comfortable with it how do you figure out if you're comfortable with it but also to tell her if anyone ever comes to you and they have a concern or a worry or someone did something to them how she should react because as a 13 year old or a 14 year old or a 15 year old you might not automatically know what to say and we shouldn't expect young people to come up with those things all on their own. We should be having those conversations. Like, if someone says this, you can tell them it's okay and you want to listen to them. If someone says this, that's a bit more dangerous. You might have to say, I think we need to tell someone about this. Like, so what are the different levels of, of how you can react to that? Um, I didn't know it automatically, and my niece didn't know it automatically either. So I think we have to talk about how we work that into schools, how we work that into parenting conversations in a way that's comfortable for everybody. So the good thing is, a few years ago, there was a change in the law. And so now, schools are required to provide education on uh, dating violence, intimate partner abuse, um, protecting their body, that kind of thing. And so we have, at JFSA, a no abuse program. And that's where teens are teaching teens, so it's peer-to-peer, -peer, about how to be safe in a relationship, how to be safe at a party, right? What are ways, what are things that it's not okay for you to accept? What are those imbalances of power? Because what we know is teens listen to other teens, right? Not always listen to their mom so much, not always listen to their dad so much. And so when the teens come in and they provide this type of education, it fits deeper and it's held on stronger by other teens. Um, and I wanna echo what Alex said, that bystander training is also an important piece that we do. We have to educate parents, we have to educate teens, we have to educate adults, we have to educate everyone in how to respond because that response can be the choice between someone staying silent or someone speaking. Thank you. I read about the midpoint in our forum. Good afternoon, my name is Justin Tinker. I'm a senior at Hawkins School, and I serve as vice chair at the Forum Council. For those of you guys online, we're currently enjoying a forum discussing the Me Too movement, featuring May Bennett, uh, director, of, sorry, domestic violence service coordinator for the Jewish Family Services Association, Rachel Dizzle, uh, reporter for The Plain Dealer, Alex Leslie, senior director of educational, ser educational services at the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, and finally, Captain James, uh, Captain James McPike, commander of the Bureau of Special Investigations in the city of Cleveland. Our moderator is Chief Council Member Rosalind Madorsky. And we're about to begin our audience Q&A portion of today's forum. 
welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via webcast. If you're joining us online and would like to ask a question, feel free to, it, to tweet it at City Club Youth, and we'll access time allows. We ask your questions to be short and brief since we have a limited time period. And holding the microphone today are you Forum Council members Natalie Sipula and Bishop Walton. I'm sorry, Walton. May I get the first question, please? Hi, I'm Andrew Kaplan from Hawken. Um, and my question is, um, like men in power have been doing, have been sexually abusing for years. Um, why do you think that this movement is only becoming relevant now? I think we touched on it a little bit. You know, um, our society is changing almost daily in, in regards to social media and how powerful that is, and how easy it is now to disseminate information through social networks. Um, I think it was always relevant. It just yeah. didn't have the megaphone that it did right. before. Um, and sometimes, you know, you'll have problems that you know are problems for a really long time, and it's just it's timing. It's the right place, the right time the right moment, the right recognition, and then you see this swell. I, I think the next question we have to ask is, is that just going to be a swell and people go, oh, remember that Me Too thing? Or is it something that will be sustained and then something long-term will come out of it? Yeah, I think that's a great point because there's, there's inevitably a backlash to um, holding people in power accountable for, for, doing, for wrongdoing. Um, and, and I, I feel the culture is sometimes looking for an excuse to not have to do that because it's hard. Um, I think one of the main reasons now it's happening is because you can't ignore so many people sharing the same story with the same perpetrator. You know, I, it it gets you can't turn a blind eye when you know 250 gymnasts are assaulted. Of course, you can't turn a blind eye when you know uh, you know however many however many. People, Matt Lauer, you know, is accused of harassing, and then some of his behavior. I mean, you, when you read some of the the things that kind of uh, were going on there, you, you can't you can't know this and look away. And I think that's one yeah. of the big things. And that's what I was gonna say. We could turn a blind eye <coughs> to it, and we have, right? Yes. Except now, people know about it. Right. Now we have a way that everyone knows what's going on, and that makes it a little more difficult to turn that blind eye. And I'm going to make a completely shameless, shameless plug that um, as much as we get beat up on, in many of these instances, it was reporters and journalists that first really pushed to bring these instances to light. In the USA Gymnastics case, it was reporters at the Indianapolis Star. In the Weinstein case, it was reporters at the New York Times and the New Yorker. Um, I could go on and on about the times in which you know journalists spent time listening to stories, getting to know, research, gathering information, and bringing those things forward. That did happen before this movement, though. Um, and so I think that you'd hear those stories. They'd come out, and then they'd kind of fizzle out. They'd be localized. Something would happen, but maybe not change. And I think there was just something about the number of people that chose to speak up that did have some position of authority um, that, that got so many people on board that, that made it trend and all that stuff. Yeah, it's powerful energy. Thank you. I imagine one of the more vulnerable groups are immigrants come to this country who don't speak the language. And um, if they come to from a, a culture more macho, let's say, and um, if there's questions about their documentation. 
Yeah, I can answer that really quickly. Um, that is a huge risk factor. You know, um, Rachel brought up the great point that perpetrators look for who they can violate and not be held accountable for violating, um, and people who are undocumented are not um, culturally, uh, let's, let's say, accepted at, to the point where they could access mainstream services comfortably. Our organization has worked to develop both partnerships and training capabilities, capacity to serve more undocumented people because you know, some people are assaulted on the journey to the United States. Some people are, you know, um, undocumented immigrants are trafficked um, and, and promised a job like being a, you know, a massage therapist or, or being a cleaner or a household, um, you know, a household uh, aid or something like that and um, are immediately turned around and sold uh, for, into sex slavery. So we're, that happens in the United States, it happens in Ohio, Ohio's the state has the fourth in the nation in terms of uh, sex trafficking. So we're talking about um, complex uh, challenges here. So I'll just say we do the best we can. We also look at who can help us. Um, so we've worked with Asia Inc., for example, um, to train all of their staff on being trauma-informed. And what that basically means is they can respond if somebody ex expresses they've experienced this uh, sexual assault um, in, a, in a way that helps them get more help. So the other side of that is the people that are documented. Mm -hmm right, that perhaps they immigrated to the United States and have an idea uh, in their mind of what's going to happen, mm -hmm. and once they get here, they're sexually assaulted, mm -hmm. and they don't know how to access um, the things that are there for us to access, or they're too afraid, or their culture speaks against it, or, 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 right? And so we can, and we should, absolutely look at the undocumented person that's being trafficked, but we also should look at that doctor who's from India that's married um, and has children and still gets assaulted. Yeah, from my standpoint, I think, you know, uh, sexual assault is already a very complex investigation to begin with, and then when you start adding in additional layers, like the victim uh, could be an undocumented um, person in this country that could be involved in illegal activities such as drug use or prostitution, you know, now the, the chance of them reporting even goes up even further. So those things just complicate the investigation. So the message that we have as a division of police is, I, I don't want to say this flippantly, but we, we really don't care about that. We really want to investigate the sexual assault. So if you're here illegally, we don't, we don't research you to see if you're here illegally. We want you to come in as a victim so we can handle your sexual assault, so we can hold somebody accountable. Um, if you're involved in illegal activity, and a lot of cases we get, uh, for instance, illegal drug use or something, we do not prosecute you for illegal drug use. We investigate the sexual assault that occurred against you. The really good news, and I bet you most people don't know this, is we have advocates embedded in the sex crimes unit of Cleveland Police from Cleveland Rape Crisis Center. So every sexual assault case we get gets a detective and gets an advocate. So even though that allows the detective to focus in on the investigation and hopefully, you know, uh, give a voice to that victim, hold the offender accountable, but if that victim needs help, like with drug use or counseling or dealing with anything, then we can, you know, they have an advocate already assigned to them. So it's actually a really good relationship. And I think that sometimes people don't know what an advocate is, right? And truly an advocate does so much, but at the core of it, an advocate holds space for that victim and whatever that victim needs in that moment. And that's our job as an advocate.
to meet them where they are um, and to fight for them and to fight with them. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Viviana Romero. I am a former, I am a journalist. I work for uh, uh, News Broadcast TV in Puerto Rico from here. Uh, but I'm here, I am as a mom. So I'm here with my daughter. She's a middle schooler. She's only seventh grade. But I think this is a wonderful venue to teach these girls and boys too that uh, they have the rights and uh, they have the voice to, to speak. But this is my point of view. I came here seven years ago. I have a bachelor degree, master degree, and when I tell you this is that I came here with all my education done in Puerto Rico in San Juan. And I have seen a kind of individualist in the social population when I came here, and it's not only in Ohio. It's a type of the nation that uh, we used to be apparently, because my friends told me, grow here like in this kind, like my house is here, my neighbor is here, whatever happens here is just their problem. And um, we need to teach, I think, you know, I don't know your thoughts like in the police area as a journalist too, what do you see? But down there in San Juan, when I used to cover uh, things, uh, I go to the different levels, people, I don't, you know, and down there the, the system just take care of everybody. Doesn't matter if it's poor, if it's, doesn't matter what uh, kind of social background they have. Uh, but I think this Me Too um, movement helps people up here to see and to have a voice and understand that parents need to teach their kids that they need to speak. It's okay if you speak. If you can, it's okay if you if something bothers you to speak and to say. So my cultural background teach me that if something bothers me, you know, very nicely, I will tell this is not right. If I see a comment that I don't like, I will talk. That's all. We need to talk. But um, going back, is this cultural thing that we are not speaking? That we are not, you know, like. What's do you guys at in the social spec? And also, I gotta say that as a, as a journalist, I was listening to the voices of the parents in the court, USA gymnastics, and mostly of them, they were saying there that they didn't believe their kids. Mm -hmm. So that's a shame. I'm sorry. We have to when a kid says something, we have to speak. We have to check. But I think it's a cultural thing. Another time that. I don't want to say anything, cause I don't. I am scared. I I don't want to. You know. I think in the school, if you, if the teacher or someone has, uh, your kid comes to you and told you something, you should have. You're the advocate for your kid. Yeah. So Sorry I don't, about having a lot of time. <laughs> I don't know that it's uh, when you say a cultural thing. Are you meaning for the United States? No. I I think that every single culture is different. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I yeah. understand that. But I think that I have seen more individualists, like some people don't want to bother, and it's fine. They just want to keep it. I yeah. just, if someone do something, a neighbor yeah. or something, yeah. it's just like, I keep it, I go around, right. and I don't want to cause situations. Yeah. And we have to teach, I think, the kids, it's not a situation. It's just like, it's your right. It's good yeah. to you to you are not in the same line or you are not agree. It's yeah. good to disagree. I think that what we're saying is many, many years where women were taught, do not talk. What happens to you is your fault. 
And even as early as the 1950s <laughs> in the school books, it was taught, this is how to be a lady. You take care of your husband. You don't ruffle feathers. Um, you dress a certain way. You keep your problems to yourself, right? So, so when we talk about 1915 and now, that's not a long time. And so that idea of keeping things to yourself and the shame of sexual violence kind of collide together. I think we see what you're talking about on a number of levels in terms of just how communities function differently now. Um, you know, we are more in our homes and isolated, you know, not just in the winter in Cleveland. We do, um, we're, we're, people are on television, people are playing video games, parents are on their phones, parents are working more, so they're not out in the neighborhood and in the community interacting with people as much as they used to be. When people are interacting, they're interacting on electronic devices, which is not the same as having a face-to-face -face conversation. So I, I, there probably is an erosion of that with police. Police would be walking up and down the street and people would be talking to them in the past. Now they're in cars and people see them when they drive by. So I think that has happened on a number of levels and people are trying to figure out how do you have more of that in-person communication that builds community, but we haven't quite figured it out yet because technology and life has changed and we haven't really figured out how to take those changes and use them always to build stronger communities, but the Me Too thing would show, oh, there is kind of a way to build a community in that way. It's just that, does that community have the same strength and staying power and meaning as face-to-face -face interactions with people that live where we live and go to school where we go to school and things like that? There, there is some evidence that, um, you know, a, a culture of online abuse, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, men who abuse women who play video games, you know, that is a, a in the Gamergate sort of movement or alt-right, you know, um, and men's rights folks, you know, the culture of, of uh, harming someone through, through telecommunications is much easier for someone to do than ever do something in person. And so there is evidence that people experiment with causing harm um, and that, that, that technology has, has made us um, less personal, personally connected um, in the sense that we, we talk about and we, we say, we um, post and we share and we embarrass in ways that we never would in person, of course. Um, and so there, that, that dynamic is part of why we use the bystander approach to combat it because you know, some of the people who, who would cross those boundaries might be the very people we need to step up and say, hey, you can't talk that way, or hey, knock it off, or displace this you know, horrible meme with something else. You know? like that's, we, we kind of need everybody um, on board. And so I, I think that there's a lot of people who think, oh, it's just words online, and they don't think that's a problem, but they would never physically assault someone, and we have to help them see it's all a continuum of harm. It's not the exact si same thing, but um, when somebody harms online, they learn that what the rush it feels to, to cause harm and not feel any consequences. And it's not a, we, the research is not clear yet about how people escalate to, to physical harm yet. But I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm Renee Dysart from Montessori High School, and I have a question on whether or not you have thoughts on whether or not uh, Title IX, the clause in the Civil Rights Act that pr protects people from sexual harassment in colleges will be reinstated with the swelling of the Me Too movement, if that will have any impact in protections in schools as we progress and continue to go to schools and apply and think about the society in which we're gonna put ourselves in for the next four years. So I, I will keep talking, uh, mostly because we have, uh, 
we have a team of folks who work with the colleges in this area to help people navigate that Title IX process. And so for folks who don't know, you did allude to what Title IX is. Title IX is law, and it is not something that's going to change anytime soon. But the way that it's interpreted and the way that it, people are held accountable around it is, is something that is a little murkier currently. As far as what will happen, I can't say. But about seven years ago, um, the federal government, one branch of it talked to the other in something called a Dear Colleague Letter, which is uh, you know, just one way of one branch talking to the other. And it basically said, you know, colleges should investigate sexual assault as a, um, as a way of complying with Title IX. That Title IX um, requires uh, access, equal access based on sex, and that uh, sexual assault is a violation of somebody's access to education. Many of you are aware of this. It actually applies to you in K through 12 as well. Um, but uh, the college uh, issue and, and how many colleges are, are still catching up, I would say um, we work with great campuses in this area and almost all of them have, have committed to policies that go above and beyond the law um, because especially private schools, they can, they can really set their own priorities in this area. But I would say wherever you go, as young people, as young aspiring allies and activists, Hold your campus accountable for their policies. Make sure that you're showing up when they have forums about this. Don't let this be a, something that's just held that the Title IX coordinator deals with and nobody else talks about. Uh, and make sure that they are training uh, often. They're training your staff. Ask your faculty members if they know what they would do if one of their students disclosed. Because these are things they should know. Um, and if, they, if their school has not adequately educated them, it's their job to do so. The importance of this, um, everything we're talking about is important, but <laughs> the majority of females that are sexually assaulted is between 16 years old and 25 years old. Um, so that's a key group to look at. People between 16 and 25 need to know that they are highly at risk. So that's going to be, like Alex said, talking to your college um, holding your college accountable. It's also talking to your high school and holding your high school accountable. The same type of structures aren't in place, meaning the Title IX for high school, but absolutely you, all of you here, can be advocates. It's not a fancy thing, right? Anybody can do it. Um, know who the key people are in your school to talk to. Um, I want to invite everyone, if you want to know more about our no abuse program um, that is instrumental in that, um, there's cards out uh, on the table. You guys can contact us if you just aren't sure how to do that. Well, Title IX is a, it's, allows there to be a reaction to something that's already happened. Mm -hmm. So it's important that that's in place and it's important that rules are followed. but. The better thing is to prevent that thing from ever happening. Um, and so starting those conversations different, starting them earlier, you know, um, it was mentioned that it's Ohio law now that all middle schools and high schools have to have some form of uh, classes on teen dating abuse and sexual assault. But I have to tell you, not all of them do. I, I covered that law when it was passed. Um, I worked with a young woman that testified for that law. and. One of the things that I found out recently is that every parent in every school district has the right to request that curriculum that their school district mm -hmm. is using. 
I started working with a number of parents that requested them and they were highly disappointed in what they saw because yeah. the school either did not have a curriculum they were using, yeah. they were making it up as they went along, or they actually weren't doing the classes like they were supposed to. So that's another place where young people and parents can yeah. step in early, go to their schools, go to their districts and say, we'd like to see what you're using. We want to see if it's any good. What We want our kids to be educated on this, or as, as a student, we would like to be educated on this mm -hmm. and have that, that role in it earlier to prevent something from happening rather than hoping that there's a good reaction after it happens. Absolutely. One of the challenges of that law is that there's no money behind it. There's not funding. Um, and so when, when we put money behind something, it speaks a little bit louder <laughs> than if there's no money. Um, and, and I know I've spoken multiple times about no abuse, but truly that is what we do specifically because of that law. Um, as one of the pieces to provide that education in the high schools and the middle schools. Yeah, and I'll quickly plug, I have two colleagues um, who are sitting at the table back there. Wave, guys. Um, and the, they're going to be available afterwards. Uh, Constance goes into schools uh, throughout the county, and uh, if you are a parent or a teacher who's here and you have not had us come to your school, we want to come. And we, we have a multi-session curriculum we can do for you all. Work it into the health curriculum, science. We've even worked with English classes if they're talking about To Kill a Mockingbird or Speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there's creative ways to integrate our content into your um, curriculum, and we want to help you do that. Yeah, so I also want to plug Yolana and Leah, who are there. Nice. Um, they do our uh, No Abuse Teen Dating Violence Prevention Program, and they're just lovely people, so <laughs> <laughs> talk to them afterwards. Um, I'm Kimberly and I, I um, organize Flow Homeschool Co-op on the west side of Cleveland. And I was glad that you guys touched on the education piece. I, I feel like the Me Too movement, since it did grow so quickly, I'm wondering if you think the name could draw even more attention into the school. So if the curriculum was called Me Too and it had um, everything that you guys are talking about because dating and uh, violence against teens in the dating world, it, I mean, that is a, a, you know, an amazing topic that needs to be covered, but I feel like the Me Too movement, the words alone bring such a, a, a heightened state of awareness now since it has grown so much. I'm wondering with the educational pieces, if you guys think that the Me Too name could go really far now in the curriculum and even in kind of clubs and open discussions in youth and for parents to be getting information. So in the 50s with the textbooks of how a woman is supposed to be and dress, if the Me Too movement can be so big that these are our rights as humans, male and female, um, and the, to the most vulnerable people to know that somebody who is caught up in drugs or who is a refugee who is very vulnerable and doesn't have much of a voice to know that they can even get help i didn't i'm educated today just hearing that alone so how do we continue using the me too movement to spread things like you can go to the police even if you're using drugs and you are protected you are still seen and taken care of it doesn't mean you're a piece of dirt that you too have these rights. So I guess my question is just on using the Me Too to grow it even further. I think it's incumbent on us who do this work to find out what, um, what messages work best for which audiences. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Me Too I think works with some audiences already. Um, there are some 
people who don't know what that even means, you know. And so it is a it is a mixture of using using what exists. Um, there's also been some really great campaigns uh, over the past several years. Um, uh, the White House, for example, a couple years ago, ago put out one called "It's on Us," um, and that was about um, you know specifically tar reaching men as aspiring allies. So I think. Um, to your point, I think we can use anything um, that that has potential, um, but you know it really depends on what's topical and what what matches with the audience. And, and so for us, it's the it's our job to talk to the schools and that um, what what works for young people. But then we also know we need to educate more broadly. And so we have a, a strategic plan to reach some of the audiences that you've spoken about um, in in really comprehensive ways. And so I guess the long answer. Answered your, or the short answer to your question is yes, of course, we, we can and we should use whatever's going to work. Yeah. And, and I think what's amazing that we are finding is that high school teens know more now than they ever did. Mm -hmm. And so we'll go into a high school and they actually will have a basis of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so these hashtags, Me Too, whatever the. <laughs> um, phrase is at, at the moment, they're making a difference. Um, and teens aren't just sitting there, right? They're actively going out and gaining education. Um, and that's just wonderful. Um, so how do you, I hate to damper the uh, progression of the movement, but how do you recognize and address um, psycholo psychological damage within children who were sexually assaulted at a young mm -hmm. age that might have sustained suppressed memories from such events? Mm -hmm. Because in the movement, um, I would say it's more direct sexual assault, but mm -hmm. a lot of the times when children are younger, they don't even know if they were sexually assaulted. So yeah. how do you address that? Yeah, so 38% of men identify being sexually assaulted before the age of 10 of victims, not all men, but of the victims. Um, so I, I think there's value to that. And really it's, it's just understanding that trauma is in our body and what happens to our mind when a traumatic experience happens and as professionals to then address that. It's letting people know what resources are out there so that they can seek their own healing in whatever way works for them, because it's going to be different for everyone, right? I hope that was the answer to your I, question. I was say, I'll, I'll quickly, I'll do a one second here. We offer therapy um, that uses creative modalities, so play therapy for younger children, art therapy for, uh, you know, tweens, adolescents, that you have to use whatever tool mm -hmm. will help somebody yeah. feel more comfortable, and then make sure that those systems help get them connected yeah. with us and make sure that we're also working with parents to help yeah. break that cycle. Um, yeah. be, and we can't take the trauma away, but we can help somebody build the coping skills because survivors of sexual violence survived a life-threatening situation. They have the strength within them to cope with this, but so often they don't realize or haven't been given a platform to explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from a law enforcement standpoint, you already heard from Alex that it takes sometimes 10 years for somebody to report sexual assault, right? Well, now we take a child and you already heard from me that most likely the person to sexually assault a child is somebody they know. So now we have that trust yep. level in there and children just don't know how to process that. Somebody they know, maybe even love, it could be a parent or a relative, close friend that they trust. And remember kids are told, trust, trust adults, right? You know, I was told that. 
and then this horrible thing happened. They just don't know how to process it. And sometimes that stays in for a very long time. Um, I do encourage people always to seek out people they do trust to talk about those things. It could be a teacher, it could be a, uh, uh, another relative, because remember, sometimes it could be a parent sexually assaulting them. And uh, any of the adults in the room, if any child ever comes forward to you and, and disclose something like this, don't freak out. Take that as a badge of honor because you've earned their trust, right? So they're looking to you to help, and that's easy. You can, you can just call rape crisis. Now, teachers in the room, I think you know your mandated reporters. Does everyone know what that means? In the state of Ohio, you have to disclose to law enforcement if a child has said something. But there are resources out there that, that can certainly help with this. I, I think, too, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I think what you're getting at is that the great that comes with Me Too and people talking about it and discussing this openly, we have to recognize that that also causes harm to people that we didn't respond or that may not be able to speak something up. And I think in anything that we do that, that can cause change for the good, it can have some consequences that we have to recognize and support those people. When we were reporting on um, testing of rape kits, I initially was like, this is great. People are gonna get recognized for what happened to them and cases will get prosecuted and bad guys will get taken off the street. And then I realized that there's a really tough part of this too because some people that had to go through something awful might not want it brought up again and they're gonna be forced to have it brought up again against their will. And that was part of the, what we did as well. And that was part of our fault for bringing it up and part of the fault for it happening in the first place. But I then you know, was thinking, well, it's our job to support those folks as best we can because they didn't have a choice either, either time in that matter. Um, so I think we just have to recognize that and do our best to support people that don't want to speak up and be part of that and people that might actually feel like they were harmed by just having the conversation go on around them and not having a choice about it. All right, round of applause for our panelists today. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a youth forum on the rise of the Me Too movement. All youth forums are sponsored by AT&T. We appreciate their continued support for our student programming. We welcome students today from Andrews Osborne Academy, Brookside High School, Flow Homeschool Co-op, Hawkins School, Laurel School, MC Squared STEM High School, Montessori High School, and St. Martin de Poor. We thank you all for being here today. If you enjoyed today's forum, join us on March 8th for our next youth forum. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Bennett, Ms. DeSell, Mr. Leslie, and Captain McPike. Thank you, Rosalind, for doing a great job moderating. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you'd like to fill out some surveys, they'll be out on the front desk today. The forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on Ideastream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.